Father, thank you that revealing Jesus is exactly what you're longing to do for our hearts and our minds this morning. Oh Lord, may you silence the distractions of the thoughts from this past week, the, the things that are weighing down on us, and may we see a picture of Jesus lifted up that clarifies the storms of our life and that gives us a focus that will see us through in the days to come. I pray this in the precious and beautiful and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Ravi Zacharias has a ministry of going around and sharing apologetics about the Christian faith. And in the 1970s, he was privileged with the opportunity to go to Vietnam. Now, if you know your world history, Vietnam was in a lot of conflict in 1971. And as he was there in Vietnam, he was facing some things that he had never seen before. He said that he would go to places and he would see fields strewn with bodies, just remnants of the war that was going on. He was shocked by the things that he was seeing. But as he went around, he also began to see that God was working in that place in a really powerful and special way. His translator was a guy by the name of Hien Pham. Hien Pham was translating his messages into Vietnamese. And one day, they were there speaking to a group of Vietnamese. And as they were speaking, suddenly he noticed that Hien had stopped translating him. And he thought, well, that's strange. I mean, I'm saying important things here. Why is he not continuing to translate? And so he looked over at Hien Pham, and Hien Pham just had tears streaming down his face. And pretty soon he looked out and others were crying. And pretty soon pastors and Vietnamese Christians and those who didn't know Jesus yet began to come forward and kneel at the front. Later he asked what had happened. And apparently Hien had said, you need to listen to this man. You need to believe what he's saying. You need to believe the word of God about Jesus because there is life in this. And it had so impacted people that they had come forward. Hien had not been translating what he said, but he wanted people to know how important what he said was. Well, the time for him to be there in Vietnam came to a close, and Ravi left Vietnam, and he had to leave Hien, his friend, behind in Vietnam. And for years, he didn't know what had happened to Hien. You know, separation can be very difficult. Separation can be very hard. We looked at last week how Jesus actually brought separation in the midst of a story where we thought separation wasn't the answer. He feeds the 5,000 with barley loaves, 5,000 men. There is women and children, so there's at least 10,000 there probably. He feeds them with barley loaves and fishes. And then in verse 15, we read this. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. And we looked at that and we said, why? Why would Jesus leave? Here are people who actually want to make him king. Isn't that what he came to do? Don't, doesn't he want to be the Messiah? But we saw how Jesus later says, you're laboring for the bread which perishes. And we looked at that rope that we had stretched out here. And we looked at how eternity stretches on forever. And we are so focused often on this tiny little bit of eternity. We're focused on our lives here and now, on the bread that perishes. And Jesus is saying, I don't just want to give you bread, but I want to be your bread. 
That's what he unpacks through the 70 verses, 70 plus verses of John chapter 6. He says, I am the bread of life. I want to give my flesh for you. And we looked at how the thief on the cross finally recognized Jesus as the king of kings. Well, we continue in this story. And John inserts something that the other gospel writers also insert into the story. But John passes over it so briefly. There's only six verses about this story. And then he goes back to talking about Jesus as our bread. But I believe that there's something crucial for us to grasp in this tiny story that doesn't get all the details that the other gospel writers put into this story, but that focuses on something vital and essential for you and I this morning. Verse 16 says, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. They were on the northwest, uh, northeast side of the lake near Bethsaida, and they were traveling across the lake to come back to Capernaum. I'm seeing some of you smiling who were recently in Israel, and maybe you're picturing the Sea of Galilee. The day that I was there it was a beautiful uh, day that was just, the, the waves weren't, were still. It was just, it looked like a peaceful place. It looked like a nice place to go sailing. In fact, we did get to go out on a boat, and we sang some songs out there. And thought, this is a beautiful lake to go sailing on. Well, the disciples, it says in the evening, they go down and they begin to sail across the sea. Now, it tells us something essential in verse 17. And it was dark and Jesus, what does it say? Had not come to them. Jesus is still separated. He's still over there up on the mountain. He still hasn't come to them. They're still separated from their best friend, their master, Jesus. They are embarking on this journey without Jesus. And Jesus has sent them, we learn from the other Gospels, they're supposed to be going across the sea. But the focus of John is, Jesus is missing. Jesus isn't with them. And he wants for them to grasp what it means not to have his presence with them. If only the disciples had remembered what Jesus had said at the end of the feeding of the 5,000 with the barley loaves and fishes. If only he had remembered what Jesus told them. Now remember, Jesus isn't focused on physical bread. Jesus is focused on himself being their bread, on being their satisfaction, on, on satisfying the appetites, the cravings of their heart of saying, I'm the only thing that will ever satisfy you. You're looking everywhere else. You need to look to me. So after multiplying this bread with that intent in mind, Jesus says to them, verse 12, so when they were filled, verse 12 goes on to say, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. He didn't want them to leave this experience behind. He wanted them to recognize in Jesus was the satisfaction for all of their desires, all their wants, all their needs. And he said, gather up the fragments. I don't want you to forget that. And in fact, he's aiming this at a specific group of people. We see as the verse goes on in verse 13. And it says this, therefore, they gathered them up and filled how many baskets? Twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Now, I don't think the Bible just does mathematics for the fun of mathematics. Yeah, there were twelve left over. But later on in the chapter, it emphasizes at the very end that he had chosen 12 to be apostles, his disciples. He had these special followers. 
And so at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, there's 12 baskets who are left over. And these 12 baskets were to show to the disciples, hey, I am enough for you to be able to share with others. I want you to take these baskets and take this experience. I want you to treasure it in your heart. And I want you to take this with you and be able to share this with others. But as they get in the boat, it's kind of apparent that this begins to leave their minds. And partially, there, I imagine, some of the thoughts that may be going through their mind. I don't know exactly what they're thinking, but as they're going along across the Sea of Galilee, you think about the disappointment in their hearts. Here was that moment that they had been longing for. They had finally gotten a group of people excited about crowning Jesus king. Not only that, it was almost the Passover. So they could have gone to Jerusalem with Jesus as their newly crowned king. They would have gotten all of the Jews who were there in Jerusalem to come together to follow Jesus. And they could have taken over the world. And Jesus walked away from that. And not only that, he was up on some mountain ignoring them and told them to go across the sea without him. And they're beginning to question Maybe Jesus isn't who he said he is. Maybe the Pharisees and the scribes are right. Maybe, and all of these doubts begin to rise in their mind, when we're separated from Jesus, we begin to doubt who he is to us and what he wants to do for us, and that he really is enough. So it continues, and I believe God gave them something to remind them of what they really needed in life. In verse 18, it says, Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. And they have, by the Sea of Galilee, these canyons that come down into it. And they say that winds can come down so suddenly onto the lake that it stirs up massive waves. At least for those first century little tiny fishing boats, they're massive waves. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Now they're away from Jesus. The wind is blowing and the waves are rocking and they are in trouble. He end, a few days, or I don't know exactly how long it was after Ravi left Vietnam, ended up getting taken in by the authorities, the Viet Cong, and they began to say to him, you're helping the Americans, you're working with the CIA, aren't you? I know that you have been brainwashed by the Americans, and they threw him into prison. And in prison, they took away his Bible, they took away any English literature, and they gave him French literature that was atheist in nature. They gave him Vietnamese literature and they began to say, you've been brainwashed by the Americans. There is no God. They gave him no end of grief day by day. They would give him this reminder. There is no God. Look at where you're at. Look at you're here in prison. Mistreating him day in and day out. How do we handle when things don't go the way we want? It's easy to say, I follow Jesus when our stomachs are full. When Jesus is multiplying the bread, when we have the fish, when everything's just the way we want it. But when the storm begins to come into our lives, how do we cling to Jesus in that moment? And do we see in Jesus a Savior in every trial that we face? He end there in prison day by day, began to read through this French literature, and little by little, seeds began to be planted into his mind. 
John tells us that the sea was rising because the wind was blowing. And in verse 19, it says, So when they had rowed about three or four miles, you picture the disciples, they're rowing and rowing against the wind and the waves. Three or four miles should have gotten them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They should have been to Capernaum by now. But they're not. They're still in the middle of the sea. Because they're being blown off course and they're straining. They're doing everything possible to save themselves out of the situation. They're in a world of hurt. They're in a world of trouble. There are waves crashing around them. The wind is blowing. It's dark. And they're trying to strain at the oars. And that's often what I'm doing in my life too. When things go wrong, I'm straining at the oars. I'm trying to get myself out of trouble. Maybe this morning you're feeling exhausted because you've been straining at the oars day in and day out, trying to find escape from the troubles that you're facing. Is that the answer? Is it just to row harder? Is it just to work a little harder at the oars and finally we'll reach the other side? They had rowed for three or four miles and they're still in the middle of the sea. Desire of Ages, page 380, commenting on the story, says this, In storm and darkness, the sea had taught them their own helplessness, and they longed for the presence of the master. They're there rowing. It's dark, the waves, the wind, and finally they begin to realize something. We just need Jesus. And I believe in my life and in your life, that's the only realization that Jesus cares about us coming to. That that's the reason that storms are allowed to come into our life. That's the reason that we go through difficult times. Jesus just wants us to recognize that we are helpless and that we need a Savior. And until I recognize that, Jesus is going to be on the mountain praying for me, waiting for me simply to give him the invitation to help. Waiting, hoping, longing that I'll realize my helplessness. I don't know what the darkness might be like for you this morning. It might have to do with your family. You might be thinking, my family is just being ripped apart at the seams. My marriage is falling apart or my kids are lost. Whatever might be going through your mind this morning, there might be darkness and storms in your family. Or maybe it's in your work. Maybe it's with your neighbors. You know, for me, oftentimes I'm discouraged by the same thing that the disciples are. Because I want Jesus to be lifted up in this place. I want for you to come to church and there not to be room for you to sit in the pews and you to have to stand in the aisles. Is that okay? I want for our parking lot to be overflowing. I want for people to be flocking to Jesus. That's what the disciples wanted. They wanted for Jesus to be king. But they wanted it for their glory. They had their own selfish ambitions. They were pursuing it. Because they wanted to be lifted up. They wanted to be at his right hand. They wanted to be his special chosen disciples, the closest to the king as he set up and established a physical kingdom. John 6 tells us that they had rowed for three or four miles and they got nowhere. And all of their rowing, all of their trying and their own, they weren't getting there. And I believe that Jesus is teaching them, hey, you can't force me into this box of being your king in the way that you want. I will do my work in a way that supersedes your expectation and it's going to be grand and it's going to be beautiful. The verse continues, and friends, this is 
an amazing story. If you think about the God of the universe coming down to reveal himself in human flesh, why does he do this? Why is it that the king of the universe does this? It says they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. I mean, Jesus could have worked this out in a million different ways. He could have yelled from the shore for the storm to be calm and there to be peace. He could have figured out numerous different ways. He could have hopped in somebody else's boat and gone out there. But he chooses to walk on water. He chooses to show that just like hunger is not a problem for me, I can create bread. Wind and waves and darkness are not a problem for me because I can walk on water. I am the king of the universe. I'm a bigger king than you realize. I can come to you in your problems when you feel like there's no hope, there's no answer. Yes, Jesus may be able to multiply bread, but when I'm stuck in the middle of the sea and the waves are blowing and the wind and he's up on that mountain, what's he going to do for me now? Well, the answer is he's going to come to you. He's going to walk on water because he is an all-powerful king who comes to us in the midst of our storms. You know, when Leah and I had our little girls, now this is not a picture of our little girls, just to clarify. We didn't take all the classes, and I didn't do enough reading, because when I went to hold these little girls in my arms, I looked at them and I thought, this is going to be beautiful. They're going to look at me and smile. They don't smile right away. Instead, I found that as I held them and I told them how much I loved them, how happy I was there, when they finally stopped crying, which we were happy they cried when they came out, I noticed that they didn't even really see me. Do you notice the look on this baby's face? Not just its face, but its eyes are cross-eyed. And oftentimes, Livy or Abby would be looking at me, I thought, but then I noticed that one eye is going over here and the other eye is... Pretty soon, Leah and I are talking like, is there something wrong with our babies? Is there, is there, I'm not sure if they're developing right. Is mentally something going on here? But apparently, this takes place in the developmental growth of a baby's brain. And pretty soon, they begin to focus. And little by little, they begin to recognize you. And pretty soon, they are smiling. They see you for who you are. Did you notice what the disciples do? Here comes Jesus, the king who's showing himself in a way that's bigger and grander than they ever could expect. As he comes to them, walking on the water, what's their reaction? What did it say? They were afraid. This is Jesus coming to them. He's their savior. He's coming to rescue them. And they are afraid of him. They look at him and they say no. He can't be doing that for us. Instead, this has to be something bad going on. The doubts in their mind are continuing to rankle, and they are even doubting that Jesus is coming to save them in that moment. And for Hien, as he was there in prison day in and day out, behind prison bars, reading atheist literature, he began to question, does God really care? If there were a God, wouldn't he get me out of this situation? I was sacrificing for him. I was living for him. I don't believe that he, there really is a God. In fact, one night before he went to bed, he began to say to himself, there is no God. There is no God. There can't be a God. This wouldn't be happening to me otherwise. I simply believe that there is no God. And he made a determination in his mind that tomorrow... 
he would not pray. And tomorrow, all day long, he would remind himself, there is no God. And that all day long, he would live from then on as an atheist. They saw Jesus walking on the water, drawing near to them, and they were afraid. How does Jesus respond when we don't believe that he's our Savior? How does Jesus respond when we don't recognize what he's wanting to do for us? How does Jesus respond when we reject him, when we try to push him away? What does Jesus do? He keeps on walking towards us. He's there for you, even if you don't want him to be there for you. He's doing everything possible to reveal himself to you. He wants desperately for you to come to know him. He says that later in John chapter 6, that all will be taught of God. Everybody's going to have this opportunity to learn about a God of love, that he loves us more than his own existence, that that's why he was willing to lay down his life for us. But Jesus, in verse 20, this is how he responds to their fear, their doubts about him, all the ways that they're feeling. You may feel like, hey, is it based on my faith, this personal relationship with Jesus? The disciples didn't have a lot of faith. The initiating factor came from Jesus. Jesus said to them, but he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. It's me. Don't be afraid. I'm coming to help you. I'm the Savior. I'm the King of Kings, and I'm coming into the midst of your storm, and I'm here to help you. Don't be afraid. Well, that day, as Hien woke up in the morning and he was determined that today he would not pray, today he would not confess that God was real. All day long he was going to repeat his mantra, God does not exist. Well, that morning as they lined up for their duties, the supervisor of the prison looked at him and said, Today, Hien, you will clean the latrines. Ah, of all the worst possible things, to have to go and clean those filthy latrines. This day was just going to be terrible. So he kept repeating to himself as he went to the bathroom and he began cleaning. He repeated to himself, God does not exist. God does not exist. And he was cleaning the various parts of the bathroom. And at the very end of cleaning the bathroom, he got down and there was the trash that needed to be emptied. And as he looked at that trash can, he looked into the trash can. And this was where they would throw their toilet paper away. And he saw a crumpled up piece of paper that had been used as toilet paper that had English writing on it. He said, ah, I've been missing English for so long. I'm going to take this and clean it off. So he takes it, he cleans off the piece of paper. He doesn't have time to read it, but he just slips it into his clothing and hides it. That night, after all of his prison mates had fallen asleep, he wakes up, and as he wakes up, he pulls the crumpled, dirty piece of paper out of his pocket. And in the upper right-hand corner, he reads Romans 8. There was a Bible page that had been used as toilet paper and thrown in the trash. And the first verse that caught his attention was Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. All things work together for good to those who love God. He kept on reading about If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? He went down to verse 35 and read, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He said, those are all the things that I'm going through this morning. Will that separate me from the love of Christ? 
He kept on reading in verse 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Even in the midst of your storm, Hien, you are a conqueror because Jesus has conquered. Because Jesus is with you. Because He shows up by bringing you His Word in the midst of your trial. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything in all creation, nor height, sorry, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. By this point, he ends, was just, the tears were flowing down his face. He said, God, You wouldn't even let me deny that you exist for one day. You wouldn't let me go without prayer for one day. And he knelt down beside his bed and he began to pray to the God who shows up in bathrooms, who shows up with promises just when you need it, to the God who is always with you in the midst of your storm, even if you don't recognize it. Verse 20, Jesus says to the disciples, It is I. Do not be afraid. And when he says that, he uses the Greek, ego eimi, which is I am. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when Yahweh shows up to Moses and he wants to know his name, he says, I am that I am. That's the name for the divine being that the Jews are worshiping. When Jesus shows up, he doesn't say quite like this. He basically says, I am. Don't be afraid. And that's the repetition that we find later in the chapter. In verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Just look to me to be satisfied, even in your storms, even when the wind's blowing, even when the waves are rocking your boat. Well, eventually, our babies, as we began to hold them, began to smile more at us. And this is just recently. You can see the smiles on their face. You can see that they're focusing in on us. But still, I had this picture that at any moment in time, I could rush over to my babies and grab them and comfort them and tell them, I love you. Do you know how much I love you? It's okay. I'm here for you. And wouldn't it be enough just to be held by your mommy and daddy? I mean, just to be held in their arms, even if you're hungry, even if things aren't going exactly like you want, shouldn't you be able to be pacified by being able to be in the presence of one who loves you? Well, It doesn't always work out quite that way. This is a picture of me holding them this week. And uh, I was pleading with them. I tell them how much I love them. I promise you, I am not a child abuser. In fact, we'll often promise them, look, mom is getting ready to feed you. The milk is coming. It won't be long. You've got to believe the promises. You've got to believe us. But they're not there yet. I have this idea that eventually they will be there. Because I look at you this morning and some of you, your stomachs may be grumbling, but you're still sitting there. So somehow something changes as time goes on. And I hope that there will be that day when I can pick up my little girl when she's crying because she skinned her knee. Or when I can pick up my little girl and she says, I'm hungry. And I'll say, it'll just be half an hour. Just trust me and let me hold you. And I hope that our relationship will grow to the place where she'll say, okay, daddy, that's enough. That's all I need. I just need to know that I'm with you and that it's going to be okay. 
Jesus is longing for that kind of relationship with us. He goes down to our level when we're like screaming little babies saying, you've got to give me a job. You've got to give me a car. You've got to take care of my family. You've got to do these things in my life. And he comes down there and he meets our needs because he wants for us to realize that he is our need, that he is our bread. Jesus shows up to the disciples and he says, I am, I am. And in John, there's six other times that he says this. After saying, I am the bread of the life, of life, in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. I'm the way that you find. I'm what can show you the way. In John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. I'll, I'll guide you. I'll, I'll watch out for you. I'll protect you. John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. I will give you eternity. Focus on the bread that doesn't perish. Stop focusing on the bread that doesn't last. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm everything you need. I am the way. I am the truth. I am. And on in John 15, verse 5. I am the vine. If you'd only realize that my presence is all you need. Just being connected to me, that is absolutely everything to you. In John 6, verse 51, he says it like this, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. I love you more than my own existence. You can trust that I will be everything that you need in your life. And then in John 6, verse 53, he explains how that's a reality for us. Because we could sit here today and we could say, well, that's great. Yeah, Jesus is everything, but how do I get to know that? How do I really experience that? How does that become a living reality to me this morning? And in John 6, in verse 53, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say, uh, sorry, 663, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. I want you to feast on the bread of life. I want you to know that I am enough. And how that's going to become a reality is for you to feast on me. For you to gather up the fragments, to, to know the promises of the, of the word, to, to dig through and to look for Jesus page after page in the Bible, to long for more of Jesus as your personal Savior through these promises. Looking at him and saying, hey, when he says, for God so loved the world, he means me. He means me. He wants to save me. Desire of Ages, page 390, goes on to say this, the life of Christ that gives life to the world is in his word. It was by his word that Jesus healed diseases and cast out demons. But by his word, he stilled the sea and raised the dead. And the people bore witness that his word was with power. <laughs> that first line just captivates me. The life of Christ that gives life to the word world is in his word. It's here. If we want that life, if we want that life in us, then we need more of the word goes on to say, he spoke the word of God as he had spoken through all the prophets and teachers of the Old Testament. The whole Bible is a manifestation of Christ and the Savior desired to fix the faith of his followers on the word. Simply trust in my promises. 
When his visible presence should be withdrawn, the word must be their source of power. He was longing for the disciples to get that. And today, he's still longing for me to get it. He's still longing for us to see the value, the beauty that is encapsulated in all of the Bible. Remember what he said to the disciples after they multi- after the bread was bread was multiplied, the fish was multiplied. He said to them, "Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost." I want to make that the commitment in my life that I gather up the fragments, that I look for the promises, even if it comes from a trash can, wherever I have to go to find those promises, even if, like Hien, it comes in a way that I don't expect. I want to saturate my life with the promises that reveal the beauty of who Jesus is. And that's what Hien began to do. In fact, the next morning, Hien decided, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my supervisor, the supervisor of the prison, and I'm going to tell him, look, let me clean the toilets again today. And the, the supervisor looked at him and said, man, this guy is arrogant. I know what I'll do. And he said, You're not going to just clean the toilets today. I'll show you what's up. You're going to clean the toilets every day until I tell you to stop cleaning them. So every day he would go and he would clean. And I imagine he was whistling as he worked. And then he would finally get to the trash can and he would open it up. And there again would be pages from the Bible. And he would wipe the filth off of them. And there was another page from Romans. And pretty soon he had most of the book of Romans. Pretty soon he began to get other parts of the Bible. Come to find out it was that supervising officer of the prison who was using his Bible when he went to the restroom as toilet paper. And he was gathering up the fragments. Do I gather up the fragments? Do I cling to his word? Do I recognize the beauty that's there, the hope that's there, the faith that it can instill in me? Do I gather up the fragments? Do you gather up the fragments? Jesus told his disciples, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. If you just cling to my words, if you'll just follow what I'm telling you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Just listen to the words that I have to share for you. If only the disciples had already recognized that in their lives. When they were there in the midst of the sea and the storm is going on, they could have remembered the promise that Jesus gave to Isaiah in Isaiah 43 verse 2. And even though Jesus was up there on the mountain, a long distance away, even though it felt like an impossibility for Jesus to rescue them out of that storm, in that moment they could have clung to a promise. They could have clung to Isaiah 43 2 and said this, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I don't know how it's going to work, Jesus. I don't have the answers. We're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The waves are crashing. The, the wind is blowing. And I don't see the answer. But Jesus, you promised me that you will be with me. I'm clinging to the Word of God. If only they had gathered that fragment in their own lives and clung to it and chosen to believe the promise, how much better this story could have been. Desire of Ages says this, page 381, when their hearts were subdued and their unholy ambition quelled, they're no longer thinking about, oh, Jesus, if he would just do things our way. But their only thought now is, give me Jesus. And in humility, they prayed for help. It was given to them. Verse 21, then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. 
Now, John does something fascinating here in this story because the other gospel writers, they talk about Peter walking on water. They talk about Jesus when he gets into the boat and the storm stilling. But none of that is here in this gospel. This story is just recorded as this tiny little six verse in, in uh, seemingly, it's just like he's interrupting this story about bread, that I am your bread. But really, what is he trying to say? He says, when they received him into the boat, it doesn't matter about the storm anymore. It doesn't even say that the storm was quieted, that the wind stopped, that the waves stopped. All it says is that when they had him in the boat, when they willingly and gladly received him, he wanted to come. When they opened their hearts and let him in, they got to their destination. You and I, if we'll only open up our hearts whether or not the storm is quieted around us, whether or not we see the answers, if we'll let our ambitions go to the side and say, Jesus, I just need you. And I'm going to gather up the fragments from your word until I find more of you. I want a closer relationship with you. Well, Hien eventually, in a miraculous way, actually was able to get out of prison and He was released from prison, but that wasn't enough for him because Vietnam was still in turmoil. So he decided, I am going to help people escape. And he began to build a boat. And he built a boat that was big enough, he thought, for 50 people to escape. And pretty soon he had 52 people who were ready to escape with him. Just days before they went to escape, it was about two days beforehand, there was suddenly an angry knock at the door. And he opened the door, and as he opened the door, there were angry, two angry Viet Cong soldiers there, and they said, you're trying to escape, aren't you? You're trying to escape and flee the country. What do you do in a moment like that? Do you cling to the promises, or do you save your own skin? Well, Hien decided, I'm going to save myself and these 50 people. He said, no. He said, yes, you are, you're lying. He said, no, I am not lying. And the two soldiers left. And Hien began to cry. He began to think about how God had seen him through and how faithful he was to his word. And he began to realize how he had let Jesus down. And he said, Jesus, give me another chance. I will tell them the truth. Sure enough, the day that they were to leave, they were ready to get going. That night, a knock was at this door again. And this time it wasn't two Viet Cong soldiers, but this time it was four Viet Cong soldiers who were there at the door. Angrily, they took him and he told Ravi Zacharias this later, he, they threw us, up, threw me up against the wall. And they said, you are trying to escape, aren't you? And he said, yes, I am. I built a boat for 52 people to get in and to escape. And they said, will you let us come with you? We want to go too. See, what really matters is that we have Jesus in the boat with us. As Hien and his 52 other friends had now four others in the boat with them, they began to go across the seas between Vietnam and Thailand. And as they're going, the sea began to get really rough. And if it weren't for four Viet Cong soldiers who were trained in how to navigate the seas, Hien said we would have drowned. But we had... In our boat, Viet Cong soldiers who saw us through. 
Friends, we've got to gather up the fragments in our lives. We've got to trust that Jesus is faithful to his word, even when it's dark, when the wind's blowing, and when we don't want to confess, and we don't want to follow, we don't want to believe. We've got to cling to Jesus, even in the midst of our difficulties. That's what the disciples finally did. They received him willingly and gladly into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. And at the end of the chapter, we see that while the other disciples leave Jesus in verse 66, the disciples finally get it. It says this, Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Look at what they say. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. They recognized that they needed to gather up the fragments of his word, that this is what mattered because it revealed Jesus, and that they would just need to cling to Jesus. Well, back in the 1800s, a letter was written to a man who had received a telegram that his wife and daughter had died on Pitcairn Island. And he was going to embark on a voyage across the ocean to go back and have the memorial as funeral service for his wife and daughter. You imagine the emotions, the storm that he was going through that day. And I believe even if you are facing the death of a loved one this morning, that nothing can separate us from his love. That he will see you through even that. But this letter is so beautiful that I just wanted to share it with you this morning. Manuscript releases, this is just part of the letter, volume 15, page 266, writing and says, My brother, you will be sorely tried and tempted at times. But ever remember that Jesus Christ is at your right hand to help you. Don't forget that Jesus is with you in the midst of those temptations, in the midst of those trials. The letter goes on to say this, Cast all your burdens upon the Lord, for He has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Rest yourself wholly in the hands of Jesus. Just rest in the hands of Jesus. Contemplate His great love, and while you meditate upon His self-denial, His infinite sacrifice made in our behalf, in order that we should believe in Him, your heart will be filled with holy joy, calm peace, and indescribable love. While you contemplate His great love, that's revealed throughout Scripture. That's the place that we find His great love as we gather the fragments. And then notice this, as we talk of Jesus, as we call upon Him in prayer, our confidence that He is our personal Loving Savior will strengthen and His character will appear more and more lovely. We'll want Jesus as our personal friend, as our personal Savior. We'll recognize the love that He has for us the more that we contemplate that love which He has for us. Friends, we've been talking for the past few weeks about an amazing opportunity that we have coming up starting April 19th. We're going to have the All About Jesus seminar where Lee Vendon is going to be here this Friday night at 6.30. And he's going to be sharing stories and Bible verses that will encourage you that Jesus is your personal and loving Savior. But I don't just want you to take my word for it, but I wanted to play a little video for you this morning to encourage you about what this seminar might be like for you. Hi, I want to tell you about the All About Jesus seminar put on by Lee and Margie Venden. As the name says, it really is all about Jesus. 
It's evangelism and revival combined. It's a safe place to invite fellow Christians and seekers. Attendance usually increases throughout the series, and I would hate for you to start coming in the middle and wish you had started earlier. Everything, from Margie's children's story to Lee's message, is focused on how you can build a better personal relationship with Jesus. Listen to what people who have just experienced the All About Jesus seminar have to say about it. It strikes you right to the heart. These meetings were so different. I've been in the church for seven years, and I really didn't know what I needed to do, what steps I needed to do to really get to know Jesus. My relationship with God has never been the same. He's funny. He's got... He's just... He's just wonderful. (laughs) It brought me to tears when I went home. I don't know how else to describe it. It was awesome. Not only did I understand it, but my six-year-old granddaughter understood it. I I saw my son um, make some huge changes in his life as well. He he makes you want that relationship with Jesus Christ and realize that he's your friend. Uh, No matter what, we can always come to Jesus. I think the whole point of all of these meetings is to get to know who Jesus is and how we can be his friend and to know that he wants to be our friend and he wants us to return the favor. I can't wait to take the material that we were able to get at the end of the seminar and invite people over to my home and share what I learned. I actually couldn't help but invite my friends to the seminar. Uh, If you're not sure about going, go to just one and, uh, and trust me, you will be hooked and you'll go to all the rest of the sessions. If you're thinking about attending this seminar, I don't think you should think. You should just go because you will not regret it. I promise. Go. It will change your life. You should definitely go. Go. Check it out. What have you got to lose? Absolutely nothing. What have you got to gain? A friend in Jesus. You don't want to miss it. I encourage you, come. (laughs) That relationship with Jesus is absolutely everything to you and I. And we have this opportunity to focus on that for just one week and one weekend. So I hope you'll join us. How many of you think you can make it out Friday night at 6.30? You're going to come and just check it out or at least come as many nights as you can. I just want to encourage you. You won't regret taking the time to enhance your relationship with Jesus. And would you join me in praying that Jesus makes this really special for all of us? But also I want to encourage you, there's still flyers out in the lobby on the table out there. They're really nice. They have lots of details about it. They have the times for it. It's going to be 6.30 all the evenings besides on Sabbath. It's going to be during the day. We'll have it during Sabbath school, church, and right after our fellowship meal uh, at 2 o'clock on both of the Sabbaths. But the information is there. It's an attractive flyer that, hey, you can hand to your neighbor. You can hand to the people you've been praying for, the people that you want to see come to know Jesus. How many of you want to invite a friend to come out to this series? You're thinking about taking a flyer and giving it to a neighbor, a friend, somebody at work. What better thing can we offer than Jesus who says, I am. You can fill in the blank. He's got everything you need. What we really need is simply him. 
whatever storm you're going through this morning, more than anything else, more than any seminar, more than any words that we could say, let's gather the fragments. Let's cling to Jesus and never let him go. If that's your desire, I just want to invite you to kneel with me as we pray together. Jesus, you are amazing. Not because, just because you can multiply bread and walk on water and do some amazing things like that. Because you are so beautiful. You are selflessly loving and you give your own life for us. Jesus, we pray we'd be captivated by that love. We'd be obsessed with it that we'd be so excited about it, that, that that's what naturally flows out of us when we're talking to our friends and our, the people that we interact with, that we'd just be overflowing with our friend Jesus. Jesus, please do whatever it takes in my heart to make that a living reality. I want you to be my very best friend, and I want to share you with everyone possible. And Lord, we're all here. We're so prone to forget and to not gather up the fragments. But Father, I pray you do whatever it takes this week, even if it means sending us wind and darkness and waves, whatever it takes for us to see our need, our helplessness, help us, Father, to believe that you are a complete and full Savior. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.